Hi everyone, my name is Warren Perry. Welcome to the National Portrait Gallery and to our regular Thursday night face-to-face -face talk. I'm really glad to see everybody here. This is our month of October series of discussions on portraits from our Time Magazine collection. And tonight we'll be talking about this work from 1984, Andy Warhol's Michael Jackson, which was the cover of this Time Magazine. You see the resemblance there. First, I want to tell you a little bit about our Time Collection. Time Magazine Collection, and this information comes to us from our historian Jim Barber, came to us from roughly 1978 forward. In the 1960s, Time Magazine realized that, the folks at Time realized that they had assembled quite a collection of portraiture for covers of their magazine, and it's, it's not that way so much anymore. There's less and less cover art on, on Time, or less and less cover portraiture on, on Time. But back in the day, Jim Barber, our, um, one of our historians, was telling me that upwards of 90, 95% of their covers were portraits. The National Portrait Gallery was kind of a natural venue for display of this, and negotiations uh, were, came underway in the late 1960s and early 1970s to bring a lot of this collection to the Portrait Gallery. This portrait was part of that collection coming to us in 1986. And again, interestingly, now only a couple of times a year does Time feature portraits. Usually uh, the Time's Person of the Year, uh, January of every year, and then usually around the 4th of July there's a portrait of someone. I want to give a brief overview of Andy Warhol and Michael Jackson. In this case, not in all cases, these two people, the sitter and the artist, knew each other, uh, you know, not, not intimately, but fairly well. They saw each other socially often. And if ever two people were meant to cross each other's paths, it would probably be Andy Warhol and Michael Jackson. Warhol's life was an indulgence to fame, and he treated fame from an insider's point of view, making him not just a portrait painter of the famous, but also a philosopher of what fame can turn you into. Jackson, on the other hand, was a poor kid who, well, he started out poor, and then he became famous at a very early age. And as many observed, he have observed, he spent years trying to avoid the fame which he earned through the sales of, of just scores of millions of records. Jackson lived his last years behind walls entering the public domain, covered from head to toe and often wearing a mask over his face. The reason the Warhol Diaries, I think, were on the bestseller list for so long is because if you were part of a clique anywhere near Andy Warhol in the 1970s or the 1980s, you probably bought a copy of that book to see if your name was in it. And it makes it kind of nice for the reader, if you want to reference who Andy Warhol 
was in touch or in tune with, and it also makes it nice for a researcher because I was able to pick up the Andy Warhol diaries and make that connection. I just went to the index, and Andy Warhol and Michael Jackson are referenced together 25 times by Warhol himself, beginning in February of 1977 and ending uh, a few months before Warhol's death. In, uh, uh, the last mention is in mid-November of 1986. One of the things I've found most interesting about consulting the Warhol diaries is often, and this is, this is kind of my opinion from looking at Warhol uh, over, the, over the last little while, really for the past two years, I think he was obsessed with three things, art, making interesting art out of common everyday or taking the famous and, 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 and turning over their portraiture in a way that to me kind of objectifies the famous. Also, he was obsessed, uh, other than with fame, he was obsessed with, with art and with, ultimately, I think, money. Andy Warhol references money in parentheses constantly throughout the diaries. He says, we caught a cab, $2, bought coffee and shared it with so-and-so, 75 cents. Just miniature uh, notations, but constant notations on money. At a glance, our artist, Andy Warhol, was born in August of 1928 in Forest City, Pennsylvania, which is just north and east of Scranton. Uh, later, his family moved to Pittsburgh, where Warhol's father, Andrej, was a construction worker and later still a coal miner. Warhol graduated from the Carnegie Institute of Technology and moved to New York to become a graphic artist. He died in New York City, February of 1987, of complications from gallbladder surgery. Michael Jackson, our subject, at a glance. He was born in August of 1958, 30 years after our painter, or after our, our artist. Jackson was born in Gary, Indiana. His father, Joseph, was a musician and a crane operator, and later manager of the Jackson Five, Michael and four of his brothers, Let's see if I can remember them all. Jermaine, Tito, Marlon, and Jackie. And he managed the group before Barry Gordy took over in Motown. And then later, the group was managed by Quincy Jones uh, when, the, when they went over from, from Barry Gordy to Epic Records. Michael Jackson was much larger on the screen and on the stage than he was in real life. Face to face, he stood 5'10", but he barely weighed more than 110 pounds. He was married twice, the first time from 1994 to 1996 to whom? Lisa Marie Presley. Lisa Marie Presley, and then the second time to Debbie Rowe from 1996 to 1999, with whom he had his first two children, Prince Michael I and Paris Jackson. And then he later had a surrogate mother for Prince Michael II, and and uh, we don't. And I believe to this day, I, I, actually, I don't. I don't know if anybody knows who uh, who the mother of this, uh, the his third child was. And Michael Jackson died in Los Angeles on June twenty fifth of last year, two thousand nine. Now I want to go to the Warhol Diaries and talk a little bit about some of the moments that these two that these two people without whom the 20th century would not be complete, that these two people shared. February 1977, and this is Andy Warhol, again, this is Andy Warhol writing in his diary. So this is Warhol, I'm quoting, first person. 
I went over to Regine's to interview Michael Jackson of the Jackson 5. This is February 2nd, 1977. So uh, Michael at this time would be, uh, he'd be 19 years old. He'd be 19. Warhol says, he's very tall now, but he has a really high voice. He had a big guy with him, maybe a bodyguard, and the girl from The Wiz. This is just before The Wiz came out on, on the big screen. The whole situation was funny because I didn't know anything about Michael Jackson, really, and he didn't know anything about me. He thought I was a poet or something like that. So he was asking questions that nobody who knew me would ask, like if I was married, if I had any kids, if my mother was alive. I told him she's in a home. We tried to get Michael to dance, and at first he wouldn't, but then he and the girl from The Wiz got up and did one dance. Warhol talks so blithely about being in touch with famous people. He talks about being in touch with famous people in a way that it, it seems to me, and this just is because I think, I have a graduate degree in playwriting and I listen to voices. Because if you know where voices are coming from, you, you kind of have a, you seek out their motive, right? Warhol, it seems to me, speaks of the famous from the point of view of a person who is contriving and trying really hard not to act like they're famous people. He wants to talk about famous people in the same way that he wants to embellish the Campbell's soup can or the Brillo pad. He's just taking the everyday and he's toying around with it. And in this case, I think that he's objectifying and placing famous people into the everyday. Like, oh, we saw Elton John, we saw, and we'll see instances of that. Uh, the girl from the Wiz is Diana Ross, right? I don't think it's Diana Ross because he mentions Diana Ross several times later on. I think this is just a cast member oh, yeah. so, because he doesn't specifically mention. And Diana Ross, of course, is fame with a capital F uh, for a decade and a half prior to this. So, no, I don't think it's Diana Ross. It's really I think this is a girl who was in the cast of The Wiz. Um, good, good question, though, because Diana Ross, of course, does show up on screen in, in The Wiz. Um, and then a few months later, October 11th, 1977, and I love these mentions of Studio 54. Studio 54 was the place that showed up on the news in the 1970s as the notorious place to go. And Warhol says, we walked over to Studio 54 for the Elton John thing. Stevie invited us up to the booth where Michael Jackson was, and Michael was sweet. In his high voice, he asked me about art. August 18th, 1981, a few years later. Cab to Madison Square Garden, $5. Susan got us backstage, and she was screaming that Catherine Hepburn was backstage, and that if I didn't hurry, I wouldn't have my picture taken with her, but I missed it all. Michael Jackson introduced us to his brothers. They all said they wanted portraits. Michael's gotten so handsome since I last saw him that time with <laughs> Stephanie Mills. We went out to the audience, and it was hard to get our seats. We had to kick kids out of them. Michael's show was maybe the best I've ever seen. He's such a good dancer, and he goes into a hole and comes out the other side in a different outfit. I don't know how he does it. <laughs> August 20th, 1981, Marlon Jackson came down, and he brought T-shirts and was so cute. He was supposed to be coming to get a portrait, but he really didn't know how to bring it up, and I didn't know either. We really want to get Michael Jackson on the cover of Interview. Warhol has established by this point, and this is the early 1980s, the magazine Interview, and our next entry, May 8, 1983, I can see we're going to be having problems getting people for interview covers from now on because I think Rolling Stone is putting the pressure on 
telling people that if they want the Rolling Stone cover, they can't do interview. They can, if you can do one or the other, but Stone doesn't want to simultaneously cover someone. Andy Warhol's covered on the cover of his magazine. But you know, our interview with Sting on the cover was the biggest seller yet, and all the music covers sell well, like Michael Jackson and Diana Ross. March 7th, 1984, and this is where we specifically find mentioned in Warhol's diaries this work mentioned twice. First, March 7th, 1984. I finished the Michael Jackson cover. I didn't like it, but the office kids did. Then the time people came around to see it, about 40 of them, and they stood around saying that it should increase newsstand sales. Later, they said they were going to use it. I think the yellow one. This is the one they used. March 12th, 1984, time came out, and the Jackson cover made it. It didn't get bumped. There was a big worry uh, when time commissioned Warhol to do this work because they bumped him from it one time prior to this. And the article inside was crazy. It had them asking if he, he, Michael, was going to get a sex change operation, and he said no. The cover should have had more blue. I gave them some in the style of the Fonda cover I did for time once, but they wanted this style. September 14th, this is the same year, 1984, the MTV Awards were so exciting, it was like the Brooklyn Fox shows in the 70s with so many stars. Diana Ross was my date, but she was in another row, the first row, because she was picking up Michael Jackson's awards. Lou Reed, and again, we're, we're name-dropping constantly throughout all the diaries. If there's anyone who was in Manhattan in the 1970s, chances are Andy Warhol. Well, if he wanted to make them well-known, he made them well-known. Or he acknowledged them. Lou Reed in my row, but he never even looked over. I don't understand, Lou why he doesn't talk to me now. Rod Stewart and Madonna and Cindy Lauper and Bette Midler and Dan Aykroyd and Peter Wolf were there. <laughs> Man, you've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven right, right there in a row. Boom, 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 boom. Name, 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 name. October 1st, 1984. Oh, and all afternoon we were waiting for Stewart to call because Michael Jackson was supposed to call him and come over and see the Bulgaros. But Stewart went out and missed the call, but he might come today if this is real. Those Bulgaros are now $2 million apiece, and Stewart has about four. They went up so suddenly. It's funny, they're just perfect paintings for Michael Jackson, like 10-year-old boys with fairy wings around beautiful women. Great moments in the life of Michael Jackson. 1970. The 1970s open up with Michael Jackson and the Jackson 5 and a number one song. Let's see if I got all the names right. Yeah, Marlon Jackson, Jackie, Tito, Jermaine, and Michael. Hitting number one on the charts with a album Diana Ross produced. Diana Ross brings you the, or Diana Ross presents the Jackson 5. And the song was I Want You Back. And the 1970s, to a very strong degree, I don't think I'm exaggerating here, belonged to the Jacksons, much more so than to any of the other fly-by-night TV show kind of bands. One way you know for sure you've made it big in the United States, the Jacksons, in August of 1971, found themselves in an ABC television Saturday morning cartoon. They were pushing breakfast cereal for all practical purposes. I watched an episode of the Jackson 5 cartoon last night, and it was 23 minutes of the Jackson 5 but it didn't have a single voice of any of the Jacksons. And what was really interesting, I thought, was Barry Gordy. It wasn't Joe Jackson or, or Mrs. Jackson who was the adult figure in the cartoon, but it was Barry Gordy from Motown who was the central adult figure in the cartoon. And then, of course, Michael has uh, a pet snake, Rosie, and two mice, Ray and Charles, Ray, Charles, <laughs> 
and they have adventures. And in the, in the first episode, uh, they get discovered by Diana Ross when Diana Ross comes to Gary, Indiana to do a performance and Michael's pet snake Rosie gets loose and refuses to come out of Diana Ross's dressing room and they have to go rescue her. She hears the Jacksons sing. And none of the Jacksons did any of the voices on, on it and Barry Gordy didn't do his own voice and it didn't sound like Barry Gordy at all actually. And the, uh, the only voice on the show that actually belonged to someone with whom the Jacksons were connected, the first episode of the cartoon had Diana Ross's voice as Diana Ross, which was kind of interesting. The cartoon ran for two years. In 1972, Michael's solo career took off with the song Ben, a stunningly written and beautifully performed ballad. Who can tell me the subject of the song Ben? Yes, ma'am. It was a rat. And the character in the movie was Willard. And the song is, is yes, and you're right on the money. It, it's one of the most amazing songs. It's just such kind of strange subject matter, but it was made for a horror movie. 1972, Ben, later on in the 1970s, Jackson's Off the Wall. 1980, uh, 1982, the release of Thriller. We're going to skip over Thriller for just a second. 1983, Jackson moonwalks on a Motown special, moonwalking and Michael Jackson become inseparable together forever. 1984, February, Jackson wins eight Grammy Awards for Thriller. 1985, one of the greater humanitarian projects ever taken on by musicians or American musicians, USA for Africa. We Are the World, written by Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie, produced by Quincy Jones, and sung by everyone. Uh, who all was on there? Bruce Springsteen, Cindy Lauper, Michael Jackson. They were all on there. Is there, you know, Diana Ross, Lionel Richie, Dion, Stevie Wonder, Rachel. If you were in a recording studio in the United States in the 1970s, you were probably on that album. It was hugely produced, and it also, it sold 7 million copies, but most importantly, it raised $60 million for African famine relief, which, and later on, uh, Michael Jackson would receive uh, several awards for, for those efforts. 1994, one of the, one of the stranger moments in, in Michael Jackson's uh, public career, he shares a kiss with Lisa Marie Presley on the stage of the Radio City Music Hall Awards in New York, September 8th, the M- or Radio City Music Hall at the MTV Video Awards. And it was, as many critics and many biographers have noted, a very unusual kiss. They just didn't look like they meant it. That's all we're going to say about the kiss. Now, I want to give you, in about a minute, a brief history of rock and roll and late 20th century pop music. First, there was Sam Phillips in a recording studio in Memphis, Tennessee, and Sam was trying to make African-American music sellable to white Americans by putting a white voice to tunes that were, that were basically musically the composition of, and a lot of times lyrically, the work of African-Americans. Sam Phillips begat Elvis. Elvis begat the Beatles, the Beatles begat the Stones, and the Who. And in 1964, Pete Townsend, let's see, the place was the Railway Tavern in Heroin Wildston. Pete Townsend breaks his first guitar in 1964. Three years later, the Beatles come out with Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, 1967. 
the year Kurt Cobain is born, 1968. The Kinks come out with the preservation of the Village Green Society, 1968 also, The Beatles and Yellow Submarine. These albums are thematic albums. They're concept albums. They're rock and roll, if not telling a story, then keeping a theme. Album-oriented rock takes over the airwaves. The airwaves go from two minutes and 30 seconds of Spiral Staircase saying, I love you more today than yesterday, to Pink Floyd extending over two album sides in 1973, Dark Side of the Moon, and songs that take you uh, in and around the human experience, sometimes in the center of the psyche, sometimes on the perimeter. Album-oriented rock rules the world for those years until 1982. What happens in 1982? What? Ma'am? Well, you actually made me back up. Thriller is what I'm thinking of, but video comes in August 1st, 1981. MTV plays its first video. Uh, Say it, I'm sorry? Video Killed the Radio Star by Buggle. The second song they played that day was Pat Benatar's You Better Run. And in the first ten songs, Rod Stewart's She Won't Dance, The Who, You Better, You Better, You Bet. And actually a really classic song that's been going through my head the past 48 hours was Cliff Richard's We Don't Talk Anymore. Um, the other concept albums that were absolutely great continued to roll out. The Moody Blues, uh, Our Children's Children's Children, everything the Moody Blues ever did. Yes, Topographical Oceans. Uh, the Who and Tommy, and, and, and of course, some pretty bad stuff out there, too. Uh, Mr. Roboto uh, <laughs> sticks, you know, stuff that you should never listen to. My personal favorite of all time, Alice Cooper's Welcome to My Nightmare. Um, but the video industry, and yes, ma'am, you're exactly right. MTV changed everything, and if MTV changed everything, Michael Jackson changed MTV. As the joke goes, the M in MTV used to stand for music. I don't know what it stands for now. But when you go back to the early days of MTV and you begin seeing these high production videos, Billie Jean and Beat It, and then the ultimate was, was Thriller, you couldn't believe that this is the same kid who 10 years earlier was singing a song about a rat. Thriller, coming out in 1982, stayed on the charts for 80 weeks. Over 30 of those weeks, it was at number one. It changed the face of American music by virtue of the music video, and also because, really, it's, it's just a hell of an album. It's harder to think of, of a better collection of songs on one piece of vinyl. It carries the timeless pop sound that, that will inspire artists and listeners for decades. This new Michael, this Michael of 1982, he had it all. He could sing. He was great looking. Also, the great dancers, Fred Astaire, Gene Kelly, and great choreographers, Bob Fosse, they all acknowledged that Michael Jackson was, he was the face of American dance. Uh, possibly, possibly one of the greatest stage performers in, in, in American history. The only thing that I have to say to detract from the spectacular effort that Thriller is, is that the song he sang on the album with Paul McCartney, The Girl Is Mine, is maybe one of the worst songs ever <laughs> recorded. 
And no rock and roller or self-respecting, self-respecting rocker. And Paul, Paul, I got a feeling Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson walked in the studio and said, oh, I can't believe we got to sing this. You know, and this, song, this one lyric, the doggone girl is mine. You know, oh, no. But anyway, those guys, they, and they made a mint selling it. One of the other things on the Thriller that's really interesting, Jackson would stop with, with, with nothing. He pulled a play from the Alice Cooper playbook and got Vincent Price to do a narration piece in the middle of the extended version of Thriller, and that's a lot of fun. For those of you who don't remember, Vincent Price's voice and Vincent Price's face were the voice and face of horror from time immemorial until his death. And then uh, also, Eddie Van Halen's guitar solo on Beat It was so great that when Weird Al Yankovic went to mimic it in his parody called Eat It, he had to find someone who could do an amazing guitar solo, and he ended up getting Rick Derringer to, to do his work for him. So actually the parody of that song is a pretty dynamic piece of art as well. Thriller, these numbers, well, the stable number is eight Grammy Awards. That's unheard of. The unstable number, and I've been trying to nail this down for about two weeks, is the number of albums sold. The only thing that's close to Thriller is the Eagles' Greatest Hits, 1971 to 1975, which is a pretty great collection. But worldwide, Thriller exceeds, exceeds those sales by far. It's thought in some circles that Thriller sold between 100 and 110 million copies worldwide. That's just, that's just unheard of. Other circles say, no, there's uh, domestic numbers that run between 40 and 45 million. In any case, if you wanted to get into a debate about the greatest album of all time, it would be based on your criteria, you know, the musicianship or, or you know, the fact that this is your favorite artist and this had a great concert tour. But in terms of sales, production, I, I think an argument could easily be made that there's, there's no, no greater body of music that, that's ever hit the, uh, hit the airwaves than Thriller. You could, you could make that argument very, very easily, and it would be hard to, um, be hard to knock it. And, and certainly, Thriller upset the apple cart of album-oriented rock forever. Because album-oriented rock, for every, like I, I guess everything, for every dark side of the moon, there, there is a Mr. Roboto. Uh, <laughs> To wrap things up, I want to just quote Steven Spielberg very briefly from this article in Time. And again, this is the third week of March, 1984. And this is straight from, straight from the article. Director Steven Spielberg has remarked that if E.T. didn't come to Elliot, he would have come to Michael's house. He reflects that Jackson is like a hybrid of outer space's most famous tourist and of Chauncey Gardner, the video-bedazzled innocent whom Peter Sellers portrayed in being there. I think Michael can be hurt very easily, Spielberg says. He's sort of like a fawn in a burning forest. Quincy Jones watched Michael break down several times while recording She's Out of My Life for the Off the Wall album, and eventually just left the crying on the album track. Jackson also teared up repeatedly while recording the children's album, E.T., The Extraterrestrial, during a break in a photo session for the album, Spielberg saw Jackson chatting and swapping gestures with E.T. It's a nice place Michael comes from, Spielberg observes. I wish we could all spend some time in his world. Thank you very much for coming out. <laughs>